0: Hi, I'm Sean Zeller, and welcome to CQ Future. If there is one thing most of us can agree on, it's that 2020 has been a brutal year, a year of upheaval on so many levels. And the pandemic and political divisions in this country have revealed the cracks and those who are falling through them. Along the fault lines of American society are truth and free speech. These two bedrocks of the nation's civil discourse have been challenged, questioned, and even battered like never before. We wanted to explore how speech and misinformation will play out in the future. There is so much riding on these values. Trust in government and faith in COVID-19 vaccines and our civic institutions are just some of the pressing issues. So we're turning to Suzanne Nossel, chief executive officer of PEN America, the leading human rights and free expression organization. Nossel is considered one of the country's leading experts on free expression and is also the author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. We appreciate you joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So free speech is defined in the First Amendment of the Constitution. Does it need an update?
1: In my view, yes and no. I'd say yes in terms of how we sort of live and breathe free speech in our daily life. In in my book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, I spell out 20 principles for how I think we can live together in our diverse, digitized, and very divided society without curbing free speech. So without paring back the First Amendment. I do think we need to make some modifications. We need to exercise voluntary restraint with speech. We need to be conscientious with language. People who have big platforms need to exercise a duty of care. But what I don't want to see is a loosening of the constraints on the government's ability to restrict speech. And that's really what the First Amendment does, is it sharply limits the government's ability to intrude on the landscape of speech, to police speech. And I think on balance, while you know we face serious problems with issues like hate speech, disinformation, the weaponization of different variations of speech online, whether it's online harassment or terrorist recruitment, I ultimately think the First Amendment balance in terms of those very narrow exceptions, which are the only arenas in which the government can intrude, fosters a, a freer society and helps avoid the risk of government overreach and a kind of politically driven ideologically div- driven encroachment on speech which in my mind would erode democracy.
0: Right. And let, and let's take a step back here. The context in which we're having this discussion is a new world in which social media is where a lot of people go to get their information, to get their news to socialize with friends, to argue and debate, and a president, Donald Trump, who has used misinformation, some say lies, to rile his base and as a political tool. And those two things have put a strain on the First Amendment. We've seen the social media organizations uh, label President Trump's tweets and his Facebook posts indicating that they are disputed, for example. Um, We saw Twitter um, block the account of a a news organization, um, the New York Post, in the run-up to the election because of a story um, linking Hunter Biden and his uh, lobbying clients to to the president-elect, Joe Biden. Does this world change things? I mean, is it fundamentally different than the world we grew up in and require some thought about free speech?
1: Look, absolutely. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, in many ways the, my point of departure for my work on these issues and my book about these issues, because, uh, you know, I think so many things are different because of the, the proportion of our discourse that happens over social media. Uh, information and communications are decontextualized. You know, it used to be you write a letter to an editor of a local paper, and you could kind of imagine just about everybody in that audience that they were all people who probably had a the same or similar socioeconomic background, racial background, lifestyle to your own, today you put it out on social media and it can ricochet all over the world, including in places where it may mean something very different and even incendiary. And so, you know, it's same token with disinformation. You know, it used to be if you're handing out a, a pamphlet on the street accusing a political opponent of, uh, you know, some evasion, or malfeasance, you know, you could reach maybe a few hundred people, maybe some newspaper somewhere would pick it up. I mean, here, you know, in this environment, you can see a Facebook uh, page, you know, with the slogan, stop the steal, you know, reaching hundreds of thousands of people within a space of hours. So the social media platforms, you know, pour a kind of ignition fuel onto certain types of communication, often that which is, know, the most polarizing, the most divisive, the most outlandish and outrageous to a particular group of people. So they are nothing like sort of the bulletin boards uh, or classified ads of yore. And they do absolutely pose new challenges. I think we're going to see more movement toward regulation in a new Congress. Europe is well ahead of us, uh, you know, with some positive indications and some concerning indications about what that means. You know, there are... At this point, almost two dozen different proposals for how to pare back Section 230, which is the blanket grant of immunity to the online platforms for user-generated content that is posted on them. You know, all kinds of things. I think some of the most important center on transparency and forcing the platforms to disclose much more about how they police and moderate content. You know, we can do that without uh, paring back the First Amendment. So I, you know, what I would say is absolutely, there's much more we need to do. It's far more complicated. We need to spend a lot more time thinking about how to sustain healthy discourse, uh, keep the flow of ideas open, elevate facts and truth and trust, uh, restore some of the damage that I think President Trump has done by denigrating fact-based and credible journalism. But that doesn't mean, you know, throwing out the First Amendment.
0: Yeah, a lot of this debate, I mean, you, you started our discussion talking about how you want to prevent the government from restricting speech. That's what the First Amendment does. The social media organizations, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, are private companies. So they are not required to abide by the First Amendment. Um, but on the other hand, they have held themselves out as public forums. And they got that Section 230, this was a, a law passed by Congress, a part of a law passed by Congress that gave them that immunity. If, for example, a user viola- posted something violating a copyright or slandering someone, it wasn't going to be Twitter's fault. It wasn't going to be Facebook's fault, so long as they responded quickly and took those things down. But you know, what do you think about how the, the social media companies have handled President Trump and this era of political misinformation?
1: Yeah, look, we did a report at PEN America back in 2017 called Faking the News, where we analyzed the spread of what we all then used to call fake news until President Trump sort of turned that term inside out to mean uh, any criticism of him, essentially. Now, Now we think of it as disinformation, but framing it as a free expression issue. And the twist is that... Overwhelmingly, disinformation is protected by the First Amendment. You're allowed to lie. You can mislead people about your the identity of a speaker. You can exaggerate or engage in hyperbole, and all of that is protected speech under the First Amendment. And yet, what we foresaw, and I think has been borne out, is that disinformation, untrammeled and uh, you know, exploding on social media poses a real threat to freedom of expression because freedom of expression, you know, why is it valuable? Why do we protect it? We protect it because we believe it's a catalyst to a whole range of other social goods that, you know, in this open marketplace of ideas, facts will rise to the foreground that we'll be able to sort truth from falsehood that, you know, the best ideas that will drive innovation and creativity, uh, you know, will rise up out of this, Fray, where we're testing one another's ideas, we're shooting down falsehoods, uh, you know, exposing fallacies. And when the, that marketplace is flooded with disinformation, those functions break down and, it, and you know, the marketplace cannot perform its intended role. And the value of our discourse becomes degraded. And, the, you know, even the utility of individual speech rights, if you can't persuade anyone of anything. If nobody believes you, you know, even when you're telling, you know, God's honest truth, what are what are your free speech rights really worth? And so I do think we have to tackle the issue of disinformation as a threat to free expression. At the same time, I think we have to do so very carefully. And, you know, we have sort of two interesting examples in recent months. One is in relation to COVID-19, where the platforms became far more aggressive in uh, denoting and downgrading and in some places deleting COVID-related misinformation, quackery hoaxes, false statements that, you know, kids, for example, can't contract or transmit COVID. And also elevating credible sources of information from the WHO, the CDC, state health organizations. And I think most of us, you know, were pretty um, satisfied with that. And it seemed to work at least have, have some role in curbing the spread of falsehoods and fallacies when it came to the pandemic you know and then they've adopted kind of a similar approach you know particularly in the run up to the election in relation to politics i think there you have to be much more careful you know i think for a lot of us okay it feels relatively comfortable because it's trump we know that he's got more than 20,000 documented lies by the washington post and, you know i think it goes beyond sort of some people call these lies you know uh, that we you know we have serious journalism outlets that have documented his patterns of falsehood and so you know calling him out seems very natural and you know it's clear he was trying to undercut democracy I think mislead people as to the outcome of the election you know suggest that there was fraud without any evidence and so you know the the ways in which the platforms have held him back you know I think stand up but I do think we have to be very careful about the precedent that we're setting and how far we want these platforms to go when it comes to policing political speech, you know, Trump, you know, for many of us is the easy case, but not for all of us. And, you know, one thing we've already seen over the last few weeks is that for some conservatives, they've now left these platforms and moved to other venues because they believe the platforms are ideologically slanted. And, You know, that's their choice, but at the same time, it may make it even more difficult for this marketplace to function if more of their discussion retreats to realms in which it never sees the light of the day. It can't be contested. There's no vying with alternative viewpoints because people have created an even more shuttered information ecosystem for themselves.
0: Right. I mean, where do you draw the line? I mean, as you say, President Trump is the easy case, And do you just end it with President Trump or do you go forward and police the speech of other politicians? Uh, It's not unusual, of course, for politicians to lie or mislead. Some might say it's part of the job description.
1: Right, I mean, you can make a whole typology of political lies, you know, everything from, you know, sort of exaggeration to hoo-ha to sort of the rhetoric and the heat of the campaign. You know, there are political ads going back many decades that, you know, might stretch the line or get three Pinocchios if today's fact-checkers were to evaluate them, uh, you know, and yet they ran on the airways. And I think we're going to get into some really interesting test cases with other politicians and their speech and whether the platforms are seen to apply the same standards.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned the traditional view of free speech that lies will be countered with other arguments and the best arguments will rise to the top and ultimately truth will prevail but that's in danger you say you think that the world of social media where certain posts can go viral where you can micro target your advertising changes that equation
1: i think it does and you know we see that yeah you know, these closed communities where People's ideas are reverberating, but in a sealed chamber where they're not exposed to you know, uncomfortable facts or contradictory theories or evidence. Uh, you know, social may- media makes that very easy and possible. You can curate who you want to be part of the conversation. You can boot people out if they don't toe the line. And yeah, you know, we see people large numbers of people who've become invested in conspiracy theories and you know absolutely take them to heart. And the question of how you sort of reality test that becomes very difficult and tense. We've done at PEN America, a series of tip sheets on sort of how to talk to friends and family about disinformation because ultimately it's gonna be in those personal relationships that, you know if people are, are to sort of see this truth, uh, it will be through somebody that they trust But social media makes that difficult. Things can travel, you know, with such speed and velocity that even a false claim, you know, there's a kind of old adage about, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a falsehood traveling around the world before the truth gets its boots on. You know, now it's uh, even faster than that on social media. And so I think there, you know, I think there's a lot of revisiting and, uh, that we need to do and a lot of examination that the platforms need to do, that civil society needs to continue to press for, that I hope a new Congress will take on to try to ensure that some of these you know, fundamental values and benefits of free speech aren't uh, lost in the shuffle as our modes of communication continue to transform.
0: Now, if the social media platforms start to uh, censor or mark or suppress certain tweets, or Facebook posts, do they become publishers? And does that then implicate the Section 230 immunity protections?
1: Well, you know, th- that's one of the questions that uh, Congress will have to grapple with as it considers these proposals. You know, they've never fit, the social media platforms have never fit neatly into a, you know, the traditional definition of a publisher, nor that of sort of a common carrier like a phone company. I mean, nobody would say that you'd call Verizon Responsible if you and I were to talk over our cell phones and plot the conspiracy, you know, you wouldn't hold the co- uh, phone company responsible for that, you know, but at the same time, you know, they're not performing any policing function. They have no idea what we're saying, or at least we hope not. Um, so I think that's one of the questions that's going to happen, you know, we're going to have to parse. I think there is a recognition that we want the companies to take some more responsibility that the harms of online speech have become so manifest and overwhelming that there you know, seems to be an emerging bipartisan consensus behind the idea that there needs to be a greater exercise of discretion. They've always done policing. I mean, that is not anything new. You know, They've done it in relation to pornography. They've done it in relation to child safety, uh, you know, and a whole range of other areas. So, you know, the idea that we'd be flipping a switch and all of a sudden, you know, turning off kind of the, you know, absolutely unfettered flow of information on social media is wrong. And I think ultimately, most of the proposals want to incentivize the companies to exercise a greater degree of moderation. One of the points I make in Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, my book, is that as kind of inevitably the platforms become more assertive in policing content, which is being demanded by users, by advertisers, and increasingly by regulators, they need to be uh, far more robust in terms of the appeals processes that they offer for people who believe their free speech speech rights are being violated. I mean, we had an incident the other day, you know, Facebook now has this ban on political advertising uh, in the post-election period, and we were trying to put up an ad about our annual event at a book talk between President Obama and Ron Chernow uh, that, uh, on the topic of the freedom to write, sort of free expression, and that was flagged as a political ad. Uh, we couldn't post it, and so you know, and how do you how do you get that rectified? How do you explain uh, that it, it, it should be perfectly permissible? It's really difficult. You can't get a human being on the line. The processes are cumbersome. Often, you don't even know why your post has disappeared.
0: Suzanne, you talk in your book about the responsibility really lying with individuals more than with institutions, companies, or government. Talk to that a bit. How are individuals implicated in this, and how can they work to preserve free speech while fighting misinformation?
1: Look, I think institutions, government, uh, civil society organizations, universities, and social media platforms all have critical roles to play, but that We also, as citizens, need to recognize that we are the rights holders here. We are the people for whom these free expression liberties and protections really mean the most. And so we've got to wake up to the ways in which they are at risk to, you know, why it is that you even asked the opening question of this conversation. You know, should we be revisiting the First Amendment? Does it, you know, has it outlived its utility? The fact that that's even, you know, part of our discussion is a reflection of the rising concerns, you know, not just here, but in so many quarters over the ways in which uh, speech has been weaponized online and the, the kind of downsides and dark sides of our public discourse. And so I do think individuals have a key role to play in thinking about how they speak, How they listen and react to the speech of others, not overreacting, uh, being measured and considered about whether we really want authorities to jump in, whether it's the administration of a university or the publishers of a newspaper or a magazine to come in and clamp down and punish some speech that we dislike. Well, maybe in this instance, that seems like a great idea, but the tables could be turned the next time around. And the speech that they ban or punish could be something that we value or agree with. And so I I try to frame up why it is that individuals have such a strong stake in free speech protections and how we can exercise our freedoms in ways that will help ensure that those those freedoms last and endure even as our society undergoes such fundamental changes.
0: Now President Trump got more than 70 million votes in the most recent election. Clearly his his strategy worked to some extent. Do you think misinformation is going to become a permanent part of our political debate, a, per- a permanent strategy of politicians?
1: You know, I worry that it will. Uh, you know, it's of course not new, but it has exploded and, you know, reached, uh, un- uh, you know, unlocked new potential uh, and efficiency as a tactic in digital era. So I don't think it's going to go away. The incentives uh, to purvey it will continue to be there. Our approach at PEN America is that really the best way to target it, because we can't, so much of it is protected by the First Amendment. Yes, there's a role for platforms and policing, but we also really need to inoculate individuals so that people become more discerning consumers of information. I believe that just as we teach students how to analyze a short story, we should be educating them on how to navigate this vast ocean of speech and information that they confront online, so that they can uh, understand what they're reading, look for indicia of validity, Uh, think twice before they share or amplify something and be more discriminating because ultimately I think that, you know, the the best defense is going to be, uh, you know, having an an educated, informed and engaged electorate and citizenry that uh, has the tools to uh, digest information in a thoughtful way.
0: Now, President Trump clearly targeted the mainstream media as he calls it. And he set up a conflict between himself and the media. And that was part of the strategy, right? And the media responded with a lot of fact-checking, with a lot of criticism of the president. Um, did the media handle it well? I mean, how, how could the media handle it differently if if they didn't handle it well?
1: Yeah, look, I think President Trump waged a very deliberate... I don't know if he thought it through top from top to bottom, but... In practice, it was a a deliberate, concerted, and and frankly rather well-executed campaign to discredit the mainstream media in the eyes of his supporters so as to lay the groundwork for him to to be able to make false claims and have them be believed. And so uh, by persistently calling the media the enemy of the American people, by decrying what they publish as fake news, he managed to convince a significant segment of the public population not to believe what they read in the pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times or see on uh, NBC or CNN. And, you know, I think that's why in the aftermath of the election, uh, you know, although his claims have been so thoroughly debunked and uh, mainstream journalists have reported that, uh, you know, incessantly, there still remains a segment of the population that buys into his theories, nonetheless, and is convinced uh, that, you know, these uh, denials and refutations coming from the media don't carry any weight. And so, you know, I think there's a big kind of rebuilding that we're going to have to do. You know, we have this segment of the population that's sort of lost to some degree to, you know, uh, when it comes to fact-based journalism. And so how do you reach them with information about uh, a, a COVID vaccine and why that is to be uh, credited and uh, is is actually safe uh, and uh, you know fully validated by the science. You know that's going to be a, a significant problem. I think.
0: When you're thinking about the health of the First Amendment, Suzanne, what are you going to be looking for going forward to help you gauge that?
1: You know a number of things. I mean I think the Biden administration. You know first off, needs to reestablish U.S. credibility as a standard bearer for press freedom and free expression, both in terms of how they themselves treat the media at the White House, also in dealing with foreign governments on things like whether American journalists are allowed to uh, report inside China, the role of U.S. agency for global media, which has been politicized and discredited in recent months under new leadership there that has really been quite disastrous. So I think there's a long agenda of what, in terms of what the Biden administration needs to do to resurrect U.S. leadership when it com- and credibility when it comes to uh, free expression. On the First Amendment, I am hoping we can move away from the kind of partisan polarization that has characterized so much of our First Amendment, both rhetoric and jurisprudence in recent years. These principles are really intended to be, I believe, uh, above politics, Uh, and and the free speech in the First Amendment should be a bipartisan cause, something that we can all agree on as an underpinning of American society and so many of the things that we love about this country. And so, you know, my hope in writing the book is really to elevate that, to also make the case to the left that the free speech that free speech is not at odds with the causes of equity, inclusivity, anti-racism and social justice that, uh, you know, the left is is driving forward and that the right to assemble, to speak out, to petition is in fact a a critical tool in driving forward those movements. And so I hope as, as those agendas proceed that the activists who are, uh, pushing them forward, recognize that free speech uh, rights are, are 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 a tool in their arsenal rather than something to push back against.
0: Yeah, address that a bit, a more if you could. I mean, it isn't only President Trump who's raised the question of the First Amendment, but but some on the left who who view certain types of speech as really harmful, um, as as bad as physical violence. In fact, is that is that as much a threat to the future of free speech?
1: It is. And I deal with it in depth in the book. Uh, I have a whole chapter that's devoted to why I think it is dangerous to equate free speech and violence, much as I recognize that free speech can cause harms. I think you've both got to acknowledge the genuine harms that, free, that speech can inflict, particularly in relation to individuals from Groups that are persistently on the receiving end of bigotry, slurs, denigration, stereotyping, and I, I, I recite in the book the ways in which that can inflict both psychological and even physiological damage, can impair academic performance. And so, I think free speech defenders need to own up to that. You know, on the same token, I think equating free speech and violence is actually you know in itself very dangerous. And you know, if I insult you and that, uh, you know, affront is an act of violence, what's to stop you from punching me in the nose? And it's just, a, it, it's a, an, uh, an invitation to escalate and to take matters into our own hands and engage in kind of um, speech-related vigilantism. So I think that is quite dangerous. But I think ultimately, though, on the left, I would say, while sometimes the demands can cross over into a kind of reflexive censoriousness that I find very troubling, I think the best way to deal with that is not to decry those on the left as coddled as snowflakes and you know, having turned their backs on the protection of free speech, but rather trying to understand the underlying concerns, you know, many of which tend to relate to this drive to eradicate the stubborn legacies of racism and other forms of exclusion, and you know, make the point that those agendas can be driven forward and must be driven forward, but they, they they don't need to and shouldn't come at the expense of free speech.
0: Suzanne, ultimately, the First Amendment is a government protection. Should Congress, should the Congress in concert with the new President Joe Biden be doing anything to shore up the First Amendment, to protect it, to alter it?
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't advise Congress to you know monkey with the First Amendment. I think it stood us in good stead, uh, you know, for coming up on two hundred and fifty years. But I think there's a lot that Congress should be looking at in terms of how to foster a healthier information ecosystem. Whether it's uh, helping to advance curriculum to educate students about disinformation, or another issue that we've taken on at PEN America that is a key part of the puzzle is the crisis facing local news, the fact that local newsrooms across the country have been decimated. Uh, More than 20% of them have closed their doors entirely. In the others, newsroom staffs have been slashed by upwards of 50%. And we have this real deficit of investigative reporting at state houses across the country. And local news outlets are actually the ones that are most trusted by citizens consistently in our polling. And so to see them disappear is really pulling out the rug from underneath democracy at the state and city level across the country. So one of the recommendations of our report was the creation of a congressional commission to look at the future of public funding for local news. I think that's something that we have to reinvent in the 21st century. And we've gotten some important support on Capitol Hill from Senators Chats, Klobuchar, Bennett, and several others, and I'm hoping we see that move forward in the new Congress.
0: Suzanne, thanks so much for sharing this with our listeners.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That's all for this edition of CQ Future. Thanks for listening. For all of us at CQ Roll Call, I'm Sean Zeller.